Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Biblically and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Justin Paley. And in today's episode, we're going to tackle quite a big question, um, but one that is very, very important. Namely, should we read the New Testament like any other book? And so without further ado, let's dive into it. So in today's episode, we're going to be tackling a pretty big question. Uh, Namely, should we read the New Testament like any other book? And I pose this question not from a religious point of view, but from a more scholarly or historical point of view. Obviously, if you are a believing Christian, uh, you're going to presumably, at least at some points, read the New Testament more in a devotional sense. Um, And so in that respect, uh, you would be reading the New Testament quite differently than you would most other books. Um, But I want to sort of bracket that aspect and and, uh, put it to the side for for the time being Uh, and really take more of a a bird's eye view of this, this issue, because I think it's important for a lot of reasons. But, uh, some that are related to more secularly, secular scholarly issues, but also some that I think uh, do have some bearing on how someone may or may not read the, the New Testament as a believer or from a devotional point of view. Um, so we talked some about uh, within previous episodes, you know, about how the New Testament came to be, about the historical background of some of these texts or some of the authors of these texts. Uh, And I don't want to necessarily delve too much into that side of things in terms of like the background and and how we got the text uh, that that currently comprise our New Testament. I more want to just take the New Testament at face value uh, and and explore this unique collection of texts, because obviously the the Bible is a corpus of texts, The, the Old Testament um, is is similar to the New Testament in the sense that there are different genres of writing and there are many different authors represented in those texts as well as different viewpoints and time periods. Um, but also for the time being, I want to bracket the, the Old Testament slash Hebrew Bible and put that to the side because while there is some overlap, uh, I, there's, um, in my opinion, I would say some different issues involved when, when talking about um, the, the Hebrew Bible. So I want to focus mainly on the, the New Testament. So when we open our New Testaments, obviously the first things that, that we encounter are the Gospels. And there's a clear delineation from there uh, in terms of the genre of text. So obviously we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which, although they differ in a lot of respects, uh, can all be classified under you know, this general term of Gospel, um, which essentially in the, the uh, original sense of the word means good news. Uh, and so although all the four Gospels approach the the life and deeds of, of Jesus very differently, uh, they could all rightly be considered more or less under a, a similar genre, the, the Gospel genre, even though at the time that they were written, there really was no such thing. The Gospels are not uh, historic biographies in the modern sense. 
they are not just interested in in relaying facts you know the the date that someone was born their parents their occupation etc cetera, etc cetera. um but so we have the the four gospels and then after john we encounter acts of the apostles which is really just the second part of luke so originally when luke was composed it, it's really more accurately uh, can be called Luke Acts, uh, and Acts is quite different from the the Gospels. I mean, obviously, it's not so much a focus on the life of Jesus as it is the development of the the early church, and focusing on some of the earliest apostles, particularly Peter and Paul, and their various journeys and, and speeches, and et cetera, et cetera. So Acts is is unique within the New Testament uh, in terms of its genre. It's not a gospel. It's more of a um, perhaps historic narrative or a narrative text, uh, though it is not historic narrative, again, in the sense that we think about it, um, or even compared to something like Judges uh, in the, the Hebrew Bible that is more of a uh, a, more of a formal history, at least in terms of how we conceptualize the term. But uh, Acts is, is unique, but again, still has that tie to Luke. So um, I, I think that the first five books of the New Testament um, are more or less descriptions of the development of the Jesus movement. And while the rest of the texts of the New Testament are also reflections of the development of the, the early church and the earliest followers of Jesus, the Gospels and Acts definitely have more of a, of a narrative component to it, more of a storytelling component to it, which mark them off from most of the rest of the New Testament. So after Acts, we have all, all the letters of Paul. Uh, and with the letters of Paul, as we've touched on in the past, and again, I don't want to get into too much detail here, basically most of the letters, um, the ones that were actually written by Paul, they're very situational. They're written to a specific church in a specific context addressing specific issues. So if we're reading it again from a more secular perspective, we do have to always keep in mind that Paul was addressing certain issues, and so he might give different advice or talk about different things depending on the particulars of any given situation. And we're also at a disadvantage because we don't have the, the other side of the correspondence. We're only getting Paul's perspective, and so our, our understanding of the overall situation is, is incomplete um, since we are only getting one perspective and oftentimes... Uh, you know, if we are writing an account of something, especially if it's, you know, an adversary or, or about an argument that we're involved in, we don't tend to write about the other side of that, that argument in um, a very impartial light. We tend to present them in, in, a, in a biased way, whether fairly or not. Uh, it, it is nonetheless biased. So we do need to always keep that in mind when reading Paul's letters. So after the, the main Pauline letters, um, we come to uh, essentially what are called more the, the general epistles. Um, so first we have Hebrews, which is an anonymous letter. Uh, in early Christian tradition, it was ascribed to Paul, but even the earliest Christians, uh, I shouldn't say earliest Christians, early Christians, um, you know, origin, some of these early church fathers of the second to fourth centuries and, and beyond, uh, they question 
whether Paul actually wrote Hebrews because it is so different than the rest of Paul's letters. And in today's uh, modern world, there are essentially no scholars um, who argue that Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews is essentially an anonymous text, and it's not it's not a letter. It almost reads as a, as a homily of sorts, as sort of a sermon. Um, but there's a lot of uh, mystery behind Hebrews and, and exactly what it is. A really fascinating text, but one that is a little bit different than the, the rest of the other literature of the, of the New Testament. So after Hebrews, then we get into the rest of the general epistles. Um, we have some that, one that's ascribed to James, two that are ascribed to Peter, um, one that's ascribed to Jude. Then we have the three Johannine epistles. And then lastly, the last book in the New Testament being Revelation, which uh, is, its, is its own beast. Uh, and that's, that, that could be a, a whole series of podcasts uh, in and of itself. But Revelation, definitely a unique text, obviously, more uh, of, of an apocalypse of sorts. Um, and so we overall looking at this corpus of texts that comprise our New Testament, it's clear that there's a lot of different genres uh, represented. And some of them are narrative texts. Some of them are actual letters that were sent to communities. And some of them uh, may even be homilies or other early Christian liturgical material. So there is some uncertainty in terms of really determining the exact nature of these texts. But um, by, by way of introduction to uh, the, the New Testament, and um, just going over all the texts as I have over the past five minutes, um, I, I wanted to just give a general overview of that before diving into really the, the heart of the topic that I want to focus on, which is how should we read the New Testament slash should we read it like we would any other text? And I think this is really important. Um, I, and what really sparked me thinking about this was a, a book by um, Robin Walsh, uh, it was published um, uh, very recently within the past year or two called the, the Origins of Early Christian Literature. And essentially she explores the, she focuses mainly on the, the, the gospel specifically. Um, and her overall argument is that we, we should think about and treat the gospels just like we would any other ancient text. And so there are a lot of parallels between, for example, how the, for gospel writers present Jesus and how other uh, sort of divine figures within the Greco-Roman world were sometimes portrayed. And so overall, her, her, her main point is that the gospels are not, are not really unique and that we, in terms of how we, we talk about them and how we treat them, again, from more of a secular or historical point of view, we should not treat them as something special. They are um, texts that do have some parallels. Um, obviously, there, there was not another um, Jesus figure in, in th that exact sense, but we do have parallels. And also that when we think about, you know, the composition of these pieces and, and what may have been the, the driving factors behind their production, um, we should assume, unless we have evidence otherwise, that they will be similar to how other texts in the Greco-Roman world were produced, whether they're texts about divine figures 
or what have you, um, the, the actual mechanics behind the production of the text and um, all of the um, historical questions that go into that. When we talk about the Gospels, and I, I will extrapolate and say any of the New Testament texts, we should not treat them in isolation or as something that um, has no parallel in the ancient world, because that's just simply not true. Um, we, we have evidence that, um, that strongly argues against that. And so we should not um, give special treatment to the New Testament just by sheer fact that it's the New Testament. So that to give a short answer to the question, uh, again, I, I will frame this as, as more um, my opinion because I think it could vary depending on um, uh, how you're approaching the text and, and why you're approaching the text. The answer to how we should read the New Testament slash should we read the New Testament just like any other book or corpus of texts and, and the short answer in my opinion would be, yes, we should treat it like any other text because if we are going to try to approach it in a non-biased way and try to look at it from a secular and historical perspective, we need to put um, any sort of, of religious ideas to the side. And by religious ideas, I mean that we need to put aside the importance and impact that these texts have had throughout the past you know, 2000 plus years. And just try to look at them as, as ancient, ancient texts in their context. Now, from a devotional point of view, obviously, that is going to change your, your attitude towards the text and what questions you're asking of the text. And I think that that's really what will help get to the heart of the problem is mainly thinking to, to yourself or just thinking more generally, what questions are we asking of the text when we approach it? Are we asking, are we expecting a, a, a formal history of the, the early Christian movement? Are we expecting a, a formal biography like we think about in the modern sense? If we're asking those types of questions, we're asking the wrong questions. We're expecting something out of the text that, that is unreasonable to ask of it because there, there was no idea of a formal biography or the way that ancient historians practice history is very different than the way that current modern historians practice history. And that's not to say that, you know, the ancients were wrong or they were misguided. It was that they were asking different questions that, than we were. They weren't necessarily interested in a hundred percent, you know, dry list of all these facts. They, they wanted to understand, um, it, it, more in story form and not story form in the sense that all of it is made up, but rather there's ways of presenting the material that um, really do play into the the reasons why a text was produced. Um, and I, I, I know that that didn't come out exactly the, the way that I was thinking about it. That doesn't make a ton of sense. So let me try to rephrase that. The, the, the reasons behind the production of these texts, I think will help inform, will, will help us ask 
more informed questions of the text. And that's why I think that there is so much overlap or, or that we, we should see some overlap between the scholarly and the devotional in the sense that whether or not we're approaching the text from a historical, secular, or uh, religious or devotional point of view, we should want to really understand the texts in their context. Now, from that understanding, each of those different groups will arrive at different conclusions regarding the, the text and its implications. But I think we can all start from the same starting point and, and really make sure that we're not asking unfair questions of the text. So another example would be if we're reading Paul's letters, we shouldn't expect a, a fully formed, you know, complex theology that's fully flushed out because that's not what those letters were for. They were for specific uh, groups of people addressing specific issues. And Paul was not primarily concerned with laying out an entire theological um, framework from which we, reading 2,000 years later, can look and then fully understand all of Paul's thought and, and all, of his, uh, all of his theology. It's really unfair to ask that of the text because it's not going to be able to provide that because it's not, it, it's, it's taking the text out of its context. And so if we do want to make sure that we're asking the right questions of the text, we do need to actually understand the context in which the text was produced. So I think that this actually ties into um, modern conceptions of literature as well, in the sense that, as we've touched on uh, in earlier episodes, we live in the world of copyright. And within copyright, this different understanding of, of an author. There is an author or, or specific set of authors of a work. And they sort of have a claim to these ideas and, and people can't just go around and, and essentially copy people's ideas and, and present them as their own. Now, there, there wasn't that same conception in the ancient world. And similarly, thoughts about texts and their purposes were also different. They weren't necessarily to present the individual author's ideas per se, um, which, you know, is reflected in the fact that all four of the Gospels first circulated anonymously and then were later only ascribed uh, names or attached to figures. So the, these authors of all of these texts, and this does not hold true for all the New Testament texts, um, you know, Think of the uh, the pseudepigraphal Pauline works, um, meaning the text written in Paul's name, but probably not actually written by the historical Paul, but someone writing in Paul's name after his death. In that case, they, the, the author is definitely trying to present their view as, as Paul's. And so that, that does fall more within sort of the modern conception of tying a text to a specific author and trying to understand their thoughts and viewpoints. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't say stuff about, you know, for example, how the gospel of the author of the gospel of Mark thought about Jesus and, and perhaps his historical background and, and all those related issues. But we do have to understand that within the production of the text that make up the New Testament, there are a diverse set of um, reasons why these authors were producing these texts. But ultimately, 
they all tie into a similar goal, which is to further explain and further flush out the God's plan and God's plan specifically in relation to the life and death of Jesus. Now, obviously, all the different genres are going to do this in very different ways. The Gospels do that by talking very specifically about Jesus's ministry, the things that he said and did. Um, but they do so, obviously, with um, a, a theological lens. So they interpret Jesus's death in different ways. They tie it back to scriptures in the Hebrew Bible, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, passages from the Torah. Uh, so there's always this constant harking back to the Hebrew Bible and trying to tie Jesus into the essentially the culmination of the story of, of Israel as started in the Hebrew Bible. So we, we always have to keep in mind that each of these texts um, are, are going to have their own sort of unique nature and, and unique things that they're trying to accomplish. Um, but ultimately, you know, regardless of, of the author's strategy, the genre, the language, all texts in the New Testament are, again, in some way, shape, or form, trying to explain and uh, spread the message about, about Jesus and about um, the, the coming implications of that, whether that's apocalyptic, you know, the world is going to end any time, or whether that's more, you know, from an ethical point of view, you know, this is how you should act, this is what you should say, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I actually kind of started off this episode thinking that um, I would follow more of a linear uh train of thought. But as I'm thinking through these issues in real time and then um, just sort of talking through them with you, um, it's it's really quite amazing how difficult and, and nuanced the answer to the question that we posed at the beginning really is. You know, it's not easy to answer the question of how we should read the New Testament or if we should read the New Testament like any other book or, or series of texts. Uh, the, the, the short and easy answer is yes. But within that yes, there's a lot of nuance because the, we, we do have a lot of texts from the ancient world, but we don't necessarily have a corpus of texts like the New Testament. And it's it's very hard to entangle an individual text from the corpus in the sense that the way that these texts were arranged, they were arranged for specific reasons. And these texts were chosen for specific reasons and produced for specific reasons. So while I would unequivocally say that we should not um, treat New Testament texts as unique or special in, in, uh, in, in a religious sense, we, we do also need to recognize that there are a lot of really unique features about the New Testament texts regardless of what their genre or, or authorship is. And so with that acknowledgement, it, it's, it adds some flavor to the, the, the short yes answer. It, it makes us stop to pause and think about 
why these texts were so impactful and and what do we do with that in a modern context what do we do with the fact that paul's letters are situational and maybe don't answer a lot of the questions that we would want them to answer you know they talk a lot about food sacrifice to idols or circumcision or whatever the case might be issues that in today's day and age the vast majority of people don't worry about um, or at least they don't consider it central to their their faith and and understanding how they can be a a good Christian or good you know fill in fill in the blank. So, um, I I think where where I ultimately want to go with this is that the the question of how we should read the New Testament again bracketing off. Um, devotional readings of the texts. I think that actually answering that question from a historical or secular point of view actually can go quite a long way toward informing us from a devotional perspective, in the sense that if we're reading these texts, approaching these texts as inspired in some way, shape, or form, or because of the content and, and, and the subjects, that they are especially very unique. And although, you know, their production uh, and, and motive for production of these texts might be similar to other Greco-Roman texts, um, nonetheless, because they focus on Jesus, they are accorded a special authority because of that. From a again, all the, I'm saying all this from a devotional or religious perspective. But if from a historical and secular point of view, we also acknowledge that it's important to place these texts in their original context, I think that that uh, can go a long way towards informing us uh, from, from a devotional and religious perspective in the sense that we can better understand what questions we can't we we should or should not ask and, and really what our expectations of the text should be so to give a couple of examples that come to mind you know we shouldn't come to the paul's letters expecting a, a fully fleshed out theological framework and we don't find it in the text and so I think that frees us from a devotional perspective to um, really try to understand what Paul is getting at in these letters. You know, what is driving him to talk about food sacrifice to idols? What is driving him to focus so much on circumcision in some letters? What is driving him to talk about the the end of the world or, um, you know, in, case of something like 1 Corinthians 7, talking about marital relations and uh, the interesting um, uh, advice and instruction that Paul gives there. I think that frees us up from a devotional perspective to look at those issues and really understand the actual underlying principle behind it. So it's not, it's not circumcision per se, that, you know, we read Galatians and we shouldn't be looking for a full fleshed out theological framework. But if we place the text in its context, we can then ask from a devotional perspective, you know, what is really the underlying message and reason on why Paul is talking about circumcision the way that he is? Or why is he talking about food sacrifice to idols in the way that he is? And why was it a problem? And so for food sacrifice to idols, which is a theme that runs throughout a lot of the Pauline letters, 
you know, it essentially boils down to Paul saying, hey, it doesn't, you know, you as an individual, you know, don't, if, if, you, if you don't have a, a bad conscience and you're eating it with thankfulness and you're giving thanks to God for this meal, even though it was sacrificed to idols, that's okay. But the second that you start eating meat that is known to be sacrificed to idols in front of other believers and you then damage their faith or, or weaken their faith, then that's a problem. So even though you personally are not affected um, or don't feel guilty, you know, what, however you want to phrase that, about eating meat sacrificed to idols, the second that that negatively affects the faith of another believer, that's where the real problem comes in. Uh, and so I think really looking at it from uh, trying to boil down these issues that seem a little bit foreign to us into more of a, of a, of a timeless principle of sorts. So in this case of the meat sacrifice to idols, you know, don't not doing things that are going to damage the, the, the faith or the life of another believer. And so distilling that down into from meat sacrifice to idols to, hey, Paul is really tackling this issue. And a lot of his advice boils down to don't be selfish and set a good example. And I think that if we didn't necessarily place those issues in the historical context and, and approach it, at least initially, from more of a, of a secular historical perspective. It makes it harder from a devotional perspective to read some of the passages in Romans or Galatians or 1 Corinthians and really understand what Paul is getting at. I think that there's uh, a lot of people who read those passages and are just confused. You know, why, why does that matter? Why was this such a big deal? I mean, it it's, can make it sometimes hard to, to really connect and, and resonate with text. Um, but if we're able to look at those issues and say, hey, these specifics aren't necessarily applicable to today's day and age and don't necessarily edify me as a believing Christian in the 21st century, I can at least distill the principles underlying Paul's instruction and why he's focusing on these issues and something like selflessness and, um, and really trying to edify and build up others. Um, is is a principle that is you know very much relevant to the 21st century and probably will be relevant throughout the rest of human history. Uh, and so those timeless principles, I think, are are, are really what I and I, I'm might be speaking for for uh, other people, and some people might disagree. But I, I I'm inclined to believe that. Uh, Christians who are reading the text from a purely devotional perspective um, would rather are, are are looking for edification and looking for instruction about what they should do, how they should act, and what being a, a good Christian looks like. And so, being able to distill some of these weird issues that you know we might not understand or that seem foreign to us into a a uh, a principle or set of principles or ethics that we can actually translate into a 21st century context and that can resonate with us and, and actually um, really edify us and um, uh, have, a, have a deep impact in terms of how we think about, you know, being a good person, good Christian, whatever the case might be, um, that 
the the historical and secular and the religious and devotional are not always at odds with one another. And I think now, you know, talking this this over with you all and and sort of going into the stream of consciousness, um, I, I, I think that's the one thing that really stands out to me in front of all of this. Uh, in addition to answering the main question posed at the beginning, uh, that we should read the New Testament text just like we would any other texts, um, that can serve as a starting point. And it's not necessarily going to uh, have a strict divide between secular and historical on the one side and devotional religious on the other. And that actually, if we start from that base, that base that both secular, historical, um, and religious slash devotional can agree upon, which is at least trying to place the text in its historical context to the best of our ability and recognizing um, the, the, the complexities involved in that, that obviously we're going to arrive at different objectives and different conclusions about the text regard, um, depending on which approach we're, we're taking, approach being secular versus um, uh, devotional slash religious, uh, that actually starting from the same baseline uh, actually helps read the text and understand the text better, regardless of what your ultimate aim is. And I find that really interesting because often we talk about, we, we, we talk about, um, you know, historical on the one side and religious on the other, as though they, they are two distinct categories with no overlap. But actually, I, I think that there is quite a lot of overlap. And that when we do acknowledge and embrace this overlap, it actually helps us be better readers of the text, regardless of the, the reasons or, or, or lens through which we're reading the text. And that that will ultimately help us be better historians or um, treat the text with the, the respect that it deserves, whether it's respect from a historical or a religious perspective. And from a religious perspective, you know, better understand a lot of those core fundamental principles that, that underlie some of the, the more foreign aspects of the text that can oftentimes make it really hard to, to understand and um, really get a good grasp on. So uh, with that, um, I do want to stop there. And I know that this was kind of all over the place, but um, I, I enjoyed thinking about these things out loud because a lot of these questions I think are really relevant for today's you know, modern age and the inflection point that we're at in terms of this um, um, divide between you know, secular and intellectual and religious and um, um, sort of backwards or, or ancient on um, um, the, the, the other end and always pitting those two against one another. I think that a, a useful piece of advice that, that everybody, whether they're a Christian, an atheist, a, a Muslim, fill in the blank, whatever you are, I think that recognizing that there, while there are differences, there's also a lot of overlap and similarities that will go a long way towards more 
fruitful conversation, more fruitful readings and understandings of the text. So rather than always pitting, you know, scientific and religious or secular and devotional against one another in almost an in, in antagonistic way, um, it, it could do a lot of good um, for us to recognize that actually, if we start from the same place, it, it's almost a mutual benefit and it makes sense well, you know, regardless of why we're approaching the text to actually place it in its original context. Um, because if, if our ultimate goal is to really understand the text better, um, and obviously better can mean different things for different people, regard, uh, you know, depending on the, the reason why reading the text in the first place. But regardless, we can all agree that a better understanding of the text can come once we take more of a step back and place it within its context. And so uh, I think the biggest thing that uh, I want to take away from this is that um, when we're answering the question, should we read the New Testament just like any other texts or corpus of text, the answer is yes, we should. But it's not because, you know, anybody is trying to deny the um, the value of New Testament texts or deny the uh, unique unique characteristics of it, but rather to uh, actually acknowledge a, a historical fact. And from there will allow us to better understand and frame the text itself, regardless of whether you're looking at it from a historical slash secular point of view or a religious slash devotional point of view. So uh, I hope that um, this has um, been an informative in some way, shape, or form, and I'm not sure exactly what I want to do the next episode on, but um, I promise it'll be a little less uh, rambling and, and have a little bit more structure to it. Um, so thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.